Hello, everybody. So good to be here, to be worshiping together. <clears throat> what did you take out of that, um, that clip? Didn't you? Well, the thing I think I found the most beautiful was, um, well, beautiful, I'm being facetious, but um, that the one lady on her list, you know, you're, they were putting up stuff right up the front of something that only God could change, and then they turned it around. And did you see she had Australian? <laughs> I just saw that twice, and I just thought, maybe God wants to show us that twice. Australian. <laughs> I was like, I love that. My name's Paul, along with my wife, Kate, who was here just now with our littleies. We have five little kids, so life is good and full and busy. Um, we have the wonderful privilege of leading One Hope, and then we have the, the amazing privilege of welcoming Cedars with us, and just such a beautiful testimony to the goodness of God in our town and how He's busy working. And when we were singing that, um, we were singing that one refrain, kind of nothing can stop you, nothing can stand in your way. Yeah, that sounds much better. Thanks, Johannes. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can stand in your way. I was thinking, God, would you do that over our town? Would you do that over Stellenbosch, Father? Bring people to know your name. So this morning, I'm going to get straight into the text. Well, in a few minutes. But I want to ask this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's a question that's often asked because well, we, we want to know, was he just a great man? Was he a moral teacher? I mean, we've all been part of conversations where this has been said, right? He's just a, a good teacher. Or was he more than that? And that's a great question. And if you're here today and you're not sure and you're asking that question, I want to say to you that's a great question. It's a great question because it's the central issue of Christianity. If Jesus was just a man, if Jesus was just a good teacher, then we can put him in that category and treat him appropriately. We can put him in that category, and that's okay. But, but if he is more than that, then that changes everything, doesn't it? If he's more than that, especially if who he is somehow has an influence or a bearing on me and my life, then it matters. That's a much bigger conversation, right? Who is Jesus? If Jesus wants to come in and change how I behave, if he wants to come into my life and say, Paul, you're not being the kind of husband I want you to be, or to my wife, you're not being the kind of wife, or he comes and he deals with our racist hearts and he says, you're not looking at other, other people and other cultures correctly, and he wants to come in and have a say in our lives, that's a whole big, much bigger question than if he's just a good man or a good teacher. Does who Jesus is have an impact on who I am? That's the question underneath the question of who is Jesus. So let's read together. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 16. And this, if you're not familiar with the Word of God, this is one of the biographies written. There's four of them, the Gospels that are written about Jesus. There's much else said about Him in the other texts of Scripture, but these four are kind of biographical in that sense. As we put this question of who is Jesus, we must turn to the Bible to answer it. Let's read in Matthew 16 and verse 13. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Messiah is a big word for the one that Israel have been waiting for. The one the prophets have been pointing toward. The one who was coming to redeem them and their sins. That's the word Messiah. The son of the living God, says Simon Peter. Verse 17, Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Take your eyes down to verse 21. Same chapter. From this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. The disciples, when they had that moment of epiphany where they said, you are the one, you are the Messiah, you are the living God, did not think that Jesus would follow it up with, I must be put to death. They were arguing about who's going to be on your left, who's going to be on your right. When you come to this great kingdom, when you're the mighty king who overthrows Rome, who's going to be your henchman? And Jesus from that time on began to say to them, I must suffer many things and be crucified. And so we're going to, we're going to ask three questions or the structure of what I'm going to speak to you about this morning is in three questions. The first one we've just read, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who's the world say he is? Who did the people of his day say he was? The second one, I'm going to read a little text just now. And we're going to ask this question, who does Jesus think he is? And you might say that as a question, or you might say it like this. Who does Jesus think he is? You ever heard it said like that? And the third question is this one. But what about you? Who do you say I am? So question number one, who do people say I am? Jesus in this passage uses this phrase, the Son of Man. Why does he call himself the Son of Man? Well, all throughout Scripture, he actually interchangeably, there's these two names used for Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God. And the Son of Man simply, if I put it extremely simply, just refers to his humanity, that he was like us. In every way. The Son of God refers to His divinity. That He was God come in the flesh to live among us. But one of the objections that people will raise when they read a passage like this is not even Jesus thought He was God. He calls Himself the Son of, the Son of Man. And you might have that objection like, why didn't Jesus just say, I am God, and then bring the evidence for it? And part of Part of the answer to that question is a, is a cultural difference in the way of thinking that in the West we now think like this. I put my thesis on the table, I put my assumption on the table, and then I'm going to prove it to you. So you say to someone, hey, I did such and such a thing, and they say, prove it. Prove it. In this culture, it worked the other way around. And what Jesus was effectively doing was he was putting his actions first he was showing them. He was proving. He was working out what he believed. And then his words followed. So Jesus was doing miracles. 
He was feeding 5,000 people. He was calming storms. He was taking a woman who came to him caught in adultery, and instead of following the pattern of stoning her to death, he said, who among you have not sinned? And then he said, woman, go. I forgive you too. Go and sin no more. And he was offering forgiveness, and they were watching and watching and watching him. And then it was as if Jesus turned to them and said, so now you've seen everything I've done. Who then does that make me? Who does that make me? Instead of coming boastfully, I am the Son of God, now watch me. Bring the lightning strike. He demonstrated it to them. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Jesus is not afraid to put the identity question on the table. If you're here and you've got big questions, Jesus is not afraid of your big questions. He's not afraid to ask you, who do you say I am? I want you to see that this question really matters. Who Jesus is really matters. And I want you to see that each and every one of us have to decide what we do with that question. So Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, the disciples answer, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Well, I was at an Alpha launch on Tuesday night, and Otto Bam, one of our guys here, was, was playing live music. And I was sitting at a table with four or five of us. And what fascinated me is how many different people Otto was compared to on that evening. He's just like dire straits. He's just like this, and, 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 and in, human, in our human nature, we kind of reach out for a familiar other source that we know that we can kind of compare, or, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, and, and someone else in the conversation says, don't they just remind you of so-and-so, and you stand there awkwardly, <laughs> it's me, no, but don't they just remind you of so-and-so, don't they, and we're always reaching out, and so the same thing's happening here, they're asking, who do the people say, and they say, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, why them? Why did they use, why did the people think that? Well, let me, let's just think through each of those names. John the Baptist, who was John? John was this prophet, a cousin to Jesus, and crowds came to hear him. This was John's primary message. Repent. Change your life. Change what you believe was his primary message. Change what you think, and then that changes how you live or your lifestyle. Scripture says John came proclaiming a gospel of repentance. John was calling on people to do these things. John was bold about sin and hell. John, both went, both of them, Jesus and John, went after religious hypocrisy. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who upheld all the laws and outside they looked so perfect, like the perfect Christian family. But if you got behind into the family, then you saw the hypocrisy of their hearts. To John, people came to be baptized and they came confessing their sins. Is it any wonder that they said, he must be John the Baptist? He must be John the Baptist. The same things were happening with Jesus. Can you see why they compared him? In fact, Jesus even went further and declared forgiveness through himself. John never ever did that. What about Elijah? Why did they say he's like Elijah? Elijah is one of the best known, powerful miracle workers of the Old Testament. A foreshadow of Jesus himself. And when they saw the miracles and the wonder of what Jesus was doing, they thought, this must be Elijah. Come back. And they saw him and they thought of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is commonly known as the weeping prophet. 
the weeping prophet, mourning over Israel, crying out in his book over Jerusalem, why won't you come? Jesus wept, Scripture tells us, over Jerusalem. He said, why? When God has made provision, Jerusalem, why? When God has given an answer, when God has sent me into the world, why do you resist Him still? When I'm calling you to follow me, when I'm offering you forgiveness and mercy, why do you resist me still? And Jesus wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, He said, I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her little chicks. Yet you refuse me. And says his heart was filled with compassion. Who do people say I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, other prophets. Doesn't, doesn't that debate ring so true today? Still in our society, isn't that one of the big questions? Who is Jesus? And that's where the debate rages. Just as much as it, as it was singing out or, or ringing out in, in Jerusalem streets, so today in Stellenbosch, sitting here, we ask the same question, who is Jesus? And our friends are asking the question, who is Jesus? And the philosophers are asking that question. Isn't there some irony in people like Richard Dawkins who've committed their whole life, in essence, to argue about a Jesus who should never have been there if he was not God? Have you ever thought about how many hundreds and thousands of sects have sprung up around the world? The same argument that the Pharisees use about Jesus' disciples themselves. When they say, did not this guy spring up and he was killed and his followers were scattered? And this one spring up and he was killed and his followers were scattered? Be careful what you do with this man. If this is not of God, it will just fade away. But if it is of God, we may find ourselves fighting against God himself. How did Christianity survive? What makes it today that we still talk about it and talk about it? We can't get away from it. You can't escape Him. Our architecture reflects Him. Our art speaks about Him. We keep writing and writing and writing book after book after book about Him. Even when you don't believe in Him and you're one of the greatest atheist minds of the world, you still have to stop and write book after book about God. And about Jesus. And I think it's ironic. Reason with me, Isaiah says. Why? Why Why are we still talking about Jesus? I'm going to leave that with you. But everywhere you turn, people are telling us who they think Jesus is. And it's the same here. Who do you, who do people say, I am Let's think about the second question. Who does Jesus think he is? Or who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are that you can come and tell me how to live my life? Resonate with anybody? You see, the logic, is, the logic goes like this. If Jesus didn't think he was God... If Jesus didn't declare himself God and he's just a Muhammad or another prophet or another great Oprah or someone else, if he was one of those people, if he did not declare himself a prophet, the argument goes like this. If he didn't claim to be God, I certainly don't need to think of him as God. 
And if I don't need to think of him as God, then he has no claim to my life. I can live as I want, do as I want. I have no desire or need to bow to this Jesus. That's the objection. And I want to just say, fair enough. I agree. If Jesus never claimed to be God, I agree. There's just one major, major problem is that it's incredibly tough, impossible to intellectually, honestly come to the Bible, to the text, and reasonably conclude, having read the Bible, that Jesus did not call himself repeatedly the Son of God. That he somehow did not think of himself as the Son of God. Of God. Let's look at just one passage. I could take you to so many, and I just want to whet your appetite because if that's one of your questions, man, there's a whole Bible for you to read. How much fun is that? How awesome is that? There's a whole Bible to read. But John 14, Jesus is busy speaking to his followers. He called them disciples, or we call them disciples, about believing in God. He's trying, to, he's trying to tell them that he has this place in eternity and he's going to take them to go there. But the problem is that one of his disciples is a real skeptic. His name is Thomas. And he's re- renowned for being skeptical. That's where the, the doubting Thomas phrase comes from. And this man, Thomas, says to Jesus, how, how are we going to know how to get there? You're telling us about this place. How are we going to get there? And he thinks very materially. And effectively, he's saying, show us a map. Tell us how to get there, Jesus. And this is what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6. To the question, how are we going to get there? He says, I am the way. Thomas, I'm the map. I am the truth, he says. What a claim. What a claim in a world that denies truth with a big T. That all truth is relative and somehow we've got to find it ourselves and dig it out from under our armpit, look under your fire. You know, when the fire is burnt out, look among the ashes and find your truth. You know, we can find it anywhere you like and it's supposed to be legitimate. Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. Then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But now Thomas is not done. Maybe he feels embarrassed in that moment when you've been outed and he wants to come back at Jesus again. So Thomas says, sorry, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Show us God and that will be enough for us. Give me your proof. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? This is how C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous authors who was a ardent atheist who turned to Christianity. This is how he wrote about texts like this. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready, they say, to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Just think about how we judge people today who rise up and say, I'm a Messiah, I'm Jesus. They get ridiculed. They get, they get derided. Why? Because they're leading a bunch of people astray. You can't turn to that guy, whoever it is, that's leading the latest cult and say, good man, great teacher. People are going to turn to you and say, what? The devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can call at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Isn't that powerful? Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. Repeatedly claimed to be God. I mean, think about this. Why did they crucify Jesus? What were the three accusations that were leveled against Jesus? I mean, this is a, this is a whole preach on its own, right? These, just these three accusations. This man loves sinners. That was the accusation against Jesus. This man loves sinners. And all of us in the room can breathe a sigh of relief. Wife, husband, breathe a sigh of relief. God loves the other one. This was the other accusation they brought against him. He heals on the Sabbath day. In other words, he doesn't keep to religious practices like I would like him to. Breathe another sigh of relief. And then the third accusation, the one that really got him killed. He claimed to be the Son of God. They said, Heresy! Kill him! Kill him! Think of Stephen in the book of Acts. And it says they, they put their hands in their ears. They stopped their ears so they, that he, they couldn't hear him anymore. Because he says, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. They couldn't deal with it. They went screaming. I mean, just picture it. We read scripture and it's just like words on a page. And when you get into it and you think, this is what's going on in the city. They're running at him screaming, picking up stones as they go quickly trying not to hear so that they can kill him. Because he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. They can't deal with it. Who do others say I am? Who did Jesus say he was? Who do you say I am? That's the third question. And the last one we'll deal with this morning. One of the things you'll notice about the Bible is how it often moves from the general to the specific. Who do the people say I am? It's a very general question. We could talk for hours about what our friends say and what the university says and what this lecture we watched on YouTube says. But then eventually it comes to the point where he gets specific and he says, but who do you say I am? And we can see this. I mean, it's so obvious in our human nature, right? You want to, you want to talk about um, loving your neighbor. 
as an example. And everyone goes, what a great idea. Let's all love our neighbors. It's brilliant. No one's going to disagree with that. And then suddenly we come to South Africa and we look at our racial inequality and we look at how Jesus defines a neighbor and suddenly it gets applied more specifically into our lives and it's my wealth that you want to take away and it's my land and it's my this and it's my that or whatever it is and suddenly it's not such a great idea anymore and we're not sure whether Jesus is a great moral teacher. Or think about forgiveness. In the general, it's so great. Let's forgive one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's make it specific. I want you to forgive your mom. I want you to forgive your dad. I want you to forgive this person who robbed you out of every cent you ever had right before you were about to retire. But God, you don't understand what they did to me. Forgiveness is a great general idea. The Holy Spirit comes and begins to work in our hearts and says, but will you forgive? Will you? Who do you say I am? Now, I think somehow in this question and just in the familiarity of reading the Bible and kids' church and we get indoctrinated with this and, and we miss some of the drama of this moment. We miss that for years and years. Jesus has been, like I said right at the beginning, He's trying to show them. And, and this is the, kind of like the crowning moment where Jesus finally asks them, Who then am I? Having seen everything that you've seen. I mean, these guys, by his actions again and again, Jesus is pointing to his Messiah status. He's saying, I am God. And I want you to notice that these people lived with him night after night. They, they slept in the same accommodation under the stars. They saw him hungry. They saw him in his worst moments when he was exhausted, utterly exhausted. They saw him in every every moment of, of trial where he was pushed in and, and crowded in by people who wanted their miracle now. They watched him. They observed him as he was rejected from towns and asked to leave in his worst moments. And yet later, they, their written account is this. He never sinned. Sinless. In fact, they had been there. The disciples were there when Jesus had publicly declared to a gathered crowd, who of you can condemn me for any sin? Imagine I stood up here this morning. He's 33 years old. If I could wind back the clock some years, I'd be 33 years old. And if I had to stand up and say, who of you could condemn me of any sin? My wife would come running to the front and keep you entertained for hours. My children would come running. Our elders, just last week, to my embarrassment, sitting in an elders meeting, I said something so stupid. I had to almost immediately, I just felt the conviction of the Spirit. And I had to say, guys, I'm so sorry that was wrong, what I just said. Yet Jesus could stand up and say, who of you? Anyone? My family is here. The disciples who've worked with me for years are here. sinless and what I'm trying to show you in painting some of this picture is that this question that Jesus asks is not a question into a vacuum it's not to some men who hardly knew him it's not to some followers enamored with a spiritual guru that they can't get close enough to actually 
know what's going on in his life, these men walked with him. In fact, these men had such a real and tangible journey with Jesus as they were trying to work out their own faith that this is what they later wrote. This, that was, was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you. In other words, we knew this Jesus. We know this Jesus. But isn't it so comforting that they had their doubts? Isn't it so comforting that they got confused? Isn't it so comforting that sometimes they only saw in part and they had to go away with Jesus afterwards and say, Jesus, that parable, we just don't get it. And Jesus would sometimes rebuke them and say, how long am I going to deal with you people, you faithless generation? And then he'd say, oh, but I'll tell you, he explains the parable. Oh, we get it now, Jesus, until the next time. Oh, we don't get it again. Explain it again. And they only see in part. Oh, man, I love the Bible. I love that it shares every wart, every sin, every frailty. It's so open. If you want to twist and, and, and make a kind of God that, that the world is going to believe, why make it like this? Why make the chief person, Peter, who's going to, who's going to be the, the kind of main leader of the church, why make him publicly deny Jesus three times and then write it down so that everyone forever knows? Do you remember the story of Jesus and his disciples in the storm? The storm is raging. Sometimes we think these guys, it's like their first trip out on, out on the sea, you know? It's like their first trip out on the ferry. These are hardened men of the sea. They've been in the sea since they're little boys. They've, without doubt, known of or known people who have died in storms upon the Sea of Galilee. And they cry out in the storm. The storm is so bad that they cry out, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? This was not some little waves. This was not some little small thing. And Jesus stands up from his sleep and he says, be still. And it was still. And you know what the scripture says? It says they were terrified. And this is the question they asked. Who then is this? And don't you love that the Bible lets us on the journey with the disciples? They, they are in the midst of this. You might be here today and, and you're saying, man, this, this sounds true, but, but who is this? I love that the disciples were asking the same question. And now we come to this crowning moment and Jesus turns to them after everything he's done. And he says, what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? Has everything I have done convinced you? And they answer, Peter answers collectively for the disciples with a resounding yes. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you. And that, that becomes the question for us today. Who do you say he is? And I want to encourage you because there's this, there's this huge fallacy that somehow to come to Christ, we've got to check our brains out of the door. If you've ever felt like that, that you can't, reason anymore you can't think scientifically you can't grapple with this you can't reason this with intellectually you just got to believe brother just believe 
I just want to settle some hearts in the room today. God is big enough for our questions. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And what's the issue? He carries on, he says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let's reason about it. Let's reason about it now. God's saying to the people, don't, don't do it one day when it's too late. Do it now. Reason with me. Another scripture instructs us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. You don't have to check your brain out. It just can't only live in the brain. It can't just stay there. At some point, it has to drop down into our heart. But God is not afraid to engage our minds. And so this is not an invitation to depart from reason or thinking, but I do want you to see in this text that we're reading this morning that it's God who reveals the answer. It's not reason which leads Peter to the answer. It's not cleverness. It's not alpha which leads Peter to the answer. Look what Jesus says, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. That's who does the work. So think, reason, but that's not going to bring you all the way. The Father who is in heaven revealed it to Peter. And Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're so clever. He says, Peter, I want you to know something so important. You did not arrive at this conclusion on your own. This was not from reading and study and more lectures and more university. Do that. Think. Use your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. But Peter, I want you to know that this was done by God. In the depth of your soul, He breathed the Spirit and something came alive. And That's why you've seen that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This work is to be real. We don't want to manipulate it, man. Man, we do not want to manipulate this with cheap hands-up moments where people have no idea what they're really doing and we just emotionally create a mood where we manipulate them into coming to Jesus and then they get this inoculation. You know, like when you're a kid, you get an inoculation in your arm and then forever you kind of, this is a negative, positive example, but you, you kind of then protected from that thing. Going forward, sometimes people come to Christ in such a way that they don't actually come to Him, but it's like an inoculation. And from then on, it's almost harder for them to come because, well, they've got their ticket to heaven. They put their hand up this one time. Nothing changed. Nothing, nothing of faith stirred in their hearts, but they got their ticket to heaven. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going. And it's almost harder to convince them of the truth of the Word of God. You with me? Faith must be stirred by him. Remember we were talking about Thomas the skeptic? When Jesus rose from the dead, and he did, Thomas wouldn't believe it. Thomas knew. He knew as a reasonable man, Thomas knew that people don't rise from the dead. They just don't. And his closest friends were saying, Thomas, it happened. We met him, Thomas. We, we touched him. We've seen him. I know it sounds incredible, Thomas, but he is alive. He's alive. And Thomas said, no way. You guys, I, look, I, I love you. I respect you, but it can't be. You must have had some group delusion think thing. that It can't 
be. And then Thomas himself, the, the doubting skeptic Thomas, encountered Jesus for himself. And what did he do? He fell on his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus in his perfect grace, in his beautiful grace, doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, come on, Thomas, make up your mind. One minute you're saying, I'm not God. The next you're falling on your knees and saying, my Lord and God, what are you? He doesn't say any of these rebuking things. He says, Thomas, you've seen and you believe. You believe. And he knew that something had happened in Thomas's heart. Who is Jesus? The disciples reached this conclusion. He is the living God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when you think through what they went through, that from that moment on their lives were forever altered, that they fled homes, they left family, and they ran literally for their lives. Go and read history books. Go and read the history of what happened to the early church. And yet these men and these women, who some would try and claim to us just wanted to propagate a new religion or just somehow do something that they didn't really deeply believe in, they were killed. They were dipped in oil. They were fed to lions. They were used as torches for Nero's um, roads as people went down the road. Go and read it. It's there in the history books. And then come and tell me that these men and women did not believe with all of their heart that they were doing this for the Savior, the King of the universe, Jesus the Messiah. This was not some cheap thing. They knew that they knew that they knew. And Jesus really is God's Son. Come in the flesh for us. Not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. Perfect life. Sinless. Death. Undeserved. Rose from the dead. That's critical. Securing forgiveness for everyone that everyone could believe. Jew, Greek, Gentile, white, black, defeating death once and for all. And he says, come. He says, will you come? Follow me. And here's, here's his criteria, and I'll finish with this. Are you weary? What a beautiful criteria. He says, are you weary and heavy burdened? Are you carrying burdens that you can't carry? You're the perfect candidate, he says. This is my criteria. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come, and I will give you rest. I will take that burden upon me, and I'll make it light for you. I'll take that yoke, which is a farming imagery of cows and a yoke. Ah, here's another one. Are you lost? That's his other criteria. Are you lost? And he says, I'm the way. I'll show you. I'm the map. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He says, are you, this is the third criteria, are you beset with sin? It's an old English word for 
riddled. Everywhere you turn, you're just like, oh, no, I didn't even know about that sin. I didn't even think about that sin. I'm just full of it. I'm just full of it. Are you weary? Are you lost? Are you sinful? These are the criteria that we come. Let's stand together this morning.